You're listening to the sixth episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. Be forewarned, a lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about depression. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my never-made concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 6, How Much? In 2021, I should probably change the name of this song so no one will wrongly suspect it's about prostitution. Don't think I will, though. You can see from earlier episodes that somehow getting into a serious relationship totally sober was much more important, much more high stakes to brethren teens than for other people. It may have been the 80s, but we knew that if we didn't forge a bond soon with someone we could live with, we'd end up single, lonely, childless, and sad in middle age, likely living in a cabin in the woods with only a cat and doing a podcast, trying and failing not to seem creepy for having a working sex drive and nowhere to drive it, no issue having issued from it to send off to college. So you see, the stakes were high. So it was like an endless audition back then. We were usual teenage guys trying to spot girls we especially liked, but we were unusual in that we weren't satisfied just looking, and we weren't even satisfied getting a bit drunk and high and making out at a field party. We were trying to connect with someone we'd want to keep for life. Oh, beloved young people, is it not a most wonderful thing to know that you're washed? That when you go to school on Monday morning or Tuesday morning, when the world around you picks up its practices, when it looks and speaks and acts as though that which was so evil in the sight of God was nothing at all, when such things as moral evil, fornication, is looked upon as that which in the 1970s is now acceptable in the world. That you sit there in that class, dear young people, that you're in the office where you are or at home where you are, and you know that you are different. You have been washed by the precious blood of Christ. You have been sanctified, set apart in that class of 30 students. If you're the only believer in that class, you are set apart. You are not one with the others. Separated, sanctified, set apart for God. There was a guy who I was jealous of back in the day because he was dating a tall, willowy, doe-eyed American girl. Doe a deer, not doe for cookies. I couldn't understand why Greg soon fled her lissom embrace, leaving her to marry a chartered accountant or something. They were about 20. When I saw her, 10 years after, she had much less hair, was much less willowy and doe-eyed, and didn't seem at all happy in who she'd managed to ensnare. Another couple of decades later, I got Greg's side of the story, though he'd left with the Brethren Light faction of our group. He had asked this girl to sit with him and held a shared hymnal at a youth group hymn sing or two back in the day, traveled to a Bible conference in her area, 
and was invited over to her folks' place. When's the wedding? her father asked Greg. I don't know what the father's intention actually was to reel Greg in or scare him off, but he achieved the latter, because Greg didn't think he was kidding. We wanted to get married young, but there were limits. Were we more or less like the animals in God's evolutionary creation? It felt like an addition, as I said, every key needing a lock to fit it, or else it would be into the junk drawer with it soon enough. As young girls, they had to get the notice of the guys without appearing to be working too hard or doing too much. They had to look absolutely adorable and entrancing without overtly relying on makeup and elaborate hairstyles or clothes that did more than hint at their general silhouettes. As guys, we needed to go to church regularly, know the Bible well enough to indicate we could lead a Bible study if necessary, but not so well as to be nerds about it and end up arguing with lonely middle-aged men about the book of Daniel while forgetting the girls entirely. We had to dress in our best preppy business casual, tan pants, docksiders, and Ralph Lauren polo rugby shirts. And if we weren't driving a car given to us by our parents, we needed to at least be driving a family car that showed that Dad could afford something fairly current. We needed to be smart, but not thinkers. Smart in terms of getting money, not in terms of reading or writing things. The taller we were than our intended love connection, the more receptive they tended to be to our advances. It helped if your family had a nice cottage with a ski boat, so you could invite her and maybe her friends and her family over to strip down to swimsuits and splash around in the sun with you. The girls had to be nice girls who were only implied sex objects. We guys needed to be overt success objects with good genes and credit ratings and families with good reputations. None of that latter stuff really mattered for the girls as much, of course. Were we like peacocks, finding females who we knew needed mates and doing our little display of affluence, stability, and status dance in front of them? Were we demonstrating that we were likely to be faithful, but not needy? Were we funny and mischievous, but not too unpredictable and free-spirited? Smart, but not deep? Outgoing, but not talkers? Did we make girls feel beautiful without mortifying them in front of their friends with too many compliments? Did we know how to ask them out, but only to brethren stuff? Did we not care what anyone else thought of our wooing, but ensure none of it was too embarrassing for her, given that all the people at the Bible conference or youth camp were certainly all watching and gossiping? I was having trouble accepting myself, and I knew this wasn't a recipe for making me feel worth some girl's time. I knew it was cheating to try to fix this by getting accepted by an acceptable girl to help me accept myself, one who liked me more than I liked myself. But I certainly wasn't above that kind of cheating either. There was a lot of desperation. I never had much of a problem opening a dialogue with girls, but they had no trouble slamming that door shut pretty quickly. Audition over. Great stuff. Thanks for coming in. We'll call you. We're not actually going to call you, but let's be mature about this. It's not personal. It's just business. We regret to inform you that your genetic material has not been deemed worthy of outlasting your time on Earth. I was only roughly the same height as the tallest of the girls I'd crush on. I came from a family from the wrong side of the tracts that was very much under a cloud given dad. I was wearing too much black, sporting cheap black Wrangler jeans, and driving one or other of the family cars that were embarrassingly large, rusty, and from the distant end of the wrong decade entirely. One had a window that didn't roll down on the driver's side. The other had a fuel gauge that always read full optimistically, so you had to guess when it was time to fill it or you'd run out of gas. 
Both had spongy brakes, a trick required to start them, and a light out somewhere or other. Second-hand shop stuff. I felt like that's the best I had to offer them more generally as well. I felt like a bargain basement boy. So the song starts at a real baseline. Would the girl I knew in my heart of hearts I would die for feel terribly sad if I died? Would the girl who sat in my abdomen, glowing like a hot ember in a wood stove, stick around long enough to have a conversation in which a connection could form and then not run away from it? Would she want anyone to want her, need anyone to need her, nay, love anyone to love her? I have always been jealous of non-British descended cultures which seem quite unlike mine about the interactions between men and women. In some of them, there's a cultural comfort with men generally liking women in general and casually letting a bunch of them know this with harmless, smiling, open, laughing and talking and generally not being afraid of them being afraid of you or not liking your liking them and me tooing you for all you are worth. Cultures in which being a man isn't being viewed as having come from a lineage primarily composed of oppression and abuse. Cultures in which women enjoy daily a bit of generalized, casual, unfocused appreciation for their physical appeal other than just from their female friends being supportively hyperbolic. But the majority of Canadians and Americans come from British stock. Hanging on in quiet humiliation is the English way, and Plymouth Brethren venerated much that was very Victorian. I'm surprised anyone from our set ended up with anyone at all. Many, many of us never did. Others were even less fortunate. Some of them settled for someone who seemed most like a whirling black hole that sucked his loved ones in with little hope of escaping something that even light couldn't get out of. Was I that kind of person? Under the tan pants and Ralph Lauren for the guys and behind the Laura Ashley dresses of the girls, a lot of brethren people hid undealt with, unexpressed, often deeply repressed darkness and contagious emotional stuntedness of a type I didn't understand at the time, and which often came out once they married. I never married. In my teens, I tended to crush on girls in their mid-twenties. In my twenties, the same thing. In my thirties, it was starting to get really embarrassing, and in my forties, I gave up entirely. I have always admired songwriters who make the most of a very limited range of musical theory and equipment performing ability even. I have always valued the color and expression over the complexity. I love what bands like Pink Floyd can do with a stage filled with musicians, but when one person takes the stage alone with just a guitar or piano and absolutely breaks your heart in a beautiful way, to me that's where the real magic begins. Of course, I've enjoyed seeing Rush's Neil Peart playing his enormous elaborate drum kit and Eric Clapton his Strat with so much variety and musical skill on display. But to me, the most impressive musical achievement I can imagine are people like Neil Young, Tom Petty, and Leonard Cohen writing the simplest songs imaginable, but ones which put down roots deep into your heart for the rest of your life. To my mind, the really wonderful thing about people like Robert Johnson and B.B. King creating the blues was how much emotion they could wring out of a couple of simple chords and progressions on a cheap guitar. B.B. King, one of the most celebrated soloists of all time, never even learned to play chords. I've heard so many people with extensive classical training utterly fail to do anything like what he could. So I have never tried to use a lot of chords or anything fancy in anything I've written. In fact, I've done the opposite. I've never even learned more music than I felt I was going to use. 
And I never wanted to write over anyone's head. I wanted to be the regular guy writing this simple song that spoke to regular folks. All three of them. This song is one of those simple songs you write and you record it and you gradually realize that maybe your recording sounds a little bit too much, like another simple song you're not terribly familiar with, but one that maybe is on the radio at the time. In the early 90s, all things 70s were suddenly hip and retro and everywhere, and Meatloaf and the Eagles and so on were making comebacks after the plastic musical wasteland that was the 80s for so many more woody and metallic folks. Alice Cooper, Kiss, Aerosmith, Neil Young, Ozzy Osbourne, Rush, Pink Floyd, and all the rest had big tours, and I got to go see them all. I'd better go see them while I can, I thought. There's no way they'll still be touring in a year or so. Well, I ended up seeing most of them back then in the 90s, and then again several times since then. I saw Kiss again just last year, shortly before Gene's 70th birthday. Some of my disgruntled but still desperately Plymouth brethren friends and I went through a big meatloaf craze right when he was making his first real comeback around 1993. We were very young. We went and saw him. I liked the mythology and harmony and overall sound more than I was impressed by his ability to sing live. Some performers are very much products of the studio. I know I am. By the end of the 90s, when I was recording a song about pouring my besotted heart out to uncaring girls once they'd shared most of their baggage and daddy issues with me for several months, 
I had meatloaf very much in mind. Boy-girl duets and all. After all, at an independent music festival I was playing in Ottawa, I'd met a young girl named Mindy who was a neo-hippie and who I thought might duet with me on this song. Mindy wrote song after song after song and had a vulnerable, jazzy little voice. Mindy had never really been recorded, so we made a demo on my cassette 4-track. She has since gone on to far more professional recording and engineers her own stuff at home, too. Back then, it was obvious that she had more soul in her Birkenstocks than I would ever have in my whole life. And so I'd gotten her to agree to play the part of the cold, disinterested girl on the song in question. And who besides Meatloaf was known for doing songs of this kind? I could just picture my song being like that. Sister and I did a Jim Steinman's angelic chorus type intro for it, and we were quite happy with it. Thing is, I was mainly only familiar with Bob Dylan's Highway 61 when I wrote the song, and didn't know many of his songs that weren't on that album. But by the time I recorded it, Guns N' Roses doing their cover of Dylan's Knockin' on Heaven's Door was ubiquitous, and our intro vocals sounded uncomfortably like the intro vocals on that song, both the GNFNR version and a host of other versions. No one working with me on it ever noted or commented on a similarity, but once I'd recorded the song and was quite happy with it, one guy, raised with the unearned critical outspokenness of a brethren person who didn't do music himself, said it sounded exactly like the Guns N' Roses version. And I mean, it wasn't like it sounded like this. I'm not someone who can easily brush off criticisms, no matter where they come from. I didn't really get that it was our intro harmonies that were the biggest reason the songs sounded similar, and so I kept trying to record the song in widely differing genres to the best of my ability. That exercise certainly ended up helping me broaden my sound. You can see how this first album I wrote became about not what I sounded like, what my sound was, so much as me discovering the heart and soul and sounds of the various musical genres and trying to work out what my own limits were. How much variety could I produce in music without learning any particular instrument properly? 
about my song and Bob's. Baby, if I died, would you shed a tear? Yeah, for me. Baby, if I talked, would you listen to me? Baby, if I asked, would you share your fears? Yeah, with me, girl, would you talk to me? Babe, how much do you wanna know me? Girl, how much do you really care? Over and over again, I'd record my song in one style. Baby, if I died, would you shed a tear? And really be pleased but then kind of forget about that version. Get an idea for a new approach to it. Try that. Then do the same thing again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. For me, working on music is like getting sucked into a seductive, raging whirlpool at sea. I get dragged into working on the song, lose track of all time, lose the ability to even walk out of the room or away from the computer I'm mixing on, helplessly listening to the one song over and over and over and over and making minuscule tweaks to it and working on it for many hours until I truly hate hearing it. Then put it away and entirely forget what I'd done with it for years. Most times I recorded a new version of How Much, I tried to keep it in the same key or one within comfortable reach of a key change and roughly the same tempo so I could fly Mindy's recorded vocals into the bridge. There was over a decade there where I didn't have contact info on her. But it was ridiculous. I'd hear a new song and think, I should try how much again, but done a bit in that style. 
It got bad, really bad. It got so bad, in fact, that like all white people in the 90s and early 2000s were required to, and which they're getting canceled for doing now, one time I too tried to rap. Just the one time, I certainly wouldn't put that in this podcast. These old recordings were pulled off ADAT tapes onto hard drives in my computers and pulled into Sonic Foundry's Vegas sound and video editing suite before Sony bought out Sonic Foundry. The bits were edited, re-edited, mixed, remixed, flown in bits into other versions and subsequent other computers, all intended to sound new and different, and finally abandoned on my various hard drives, which I kept far after the Windows XP computers in which they had once resided had long since been tossed to the curb. Well, now I'm making a podcast, different from an album. You want random scraps for color. So I spend a lot of time tracking down and reassembling some of these old versions to trot out for your amusement and edification. A lot of good stuff there, I thought, but no one definitive version of how much that worked on its own. Even after I tried adding in that fourth chord, so the song had all four chords of a pop single. The four chords of a pop single. So I came up with a concept for the podcast. I would start out with the most simple, stripped-down version of the song, with the idea that the protagonist sings it to a girl. Baby, if I died, would you shed a tear? Baby, if I talked, would you listen to me? Then I'd have a girl say, That's okay and everything, but it's kind of boring. Could you maybe, like, add more stuff to it? Baby, if I asked, would you share your fears? Girl, would you talk to me? Mm, can't really dance to that. Can you, like... Do it with more of a beat. Okay, and can you rap? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Okay, but it's the 90s now. Could you do something more 90s? Maybe more late 90s? 
rhyming. If a brother gets you, he gets you a rhyme, and you're off like a shot, and you blame it on time. I bet by now you suck my mood. You probably think I got a bad attitude. Demand a demand that he make it easy, slow and romantic, not fast and sleazy. This should have taken all power given at your pace that you're driven. Well, this is my rhyme, so I'll go and make free. I've never met someone who will let me be me. I never met someone who thinks I fit her, and I'm well aware this is making me bitter. I'm also aware that times are wasting. The proof for the pudding is in the tasting. I was going to do it with each verse played completely, with the talking happening inside the song more rather than in bits like I just did it. But then, in all my dumpster diving through dusty old disk drives, I found a version I cannot to this day remember doing at all. I listened to it, open, in an old version of Sony's Vegas, feeling like I'd never heard it before. It had my sister on it. and me playing everything else, including several parts on a borrowed keyboard. But getting Bill to play bass guitar, as far as the file names indicate. This places the song in the early 2000s, between me being done recording in the studio, the studio having gone out of business, but my not yet using Pro Tools and better gear, which started around 2005. Now there, I thought to myself in chagrin, there is one definite version of how much that kind of works on its own. I don't think it sounds entirely like knocking on heaven's door, especially not the choruses. And fortunately, my transparent attempt to apparently duplicate Dire Straits sound was not so successful as to make this a completely un-me song. Looking at its runtime, I must have quailed to use a version this slow and this long for an album. But nowadays, when I'm not trying to hit a 3.5 minute radio single mark, I think I'll do whatever I like. The first thing I did was add a second snare drum to beef up the fairly thin drum loop I had created over a decade ago with cheap mics and software. Then I decided to try the backward reverb trick on it. The backward reverb trick. Take a sound you're gonna mess with and make a copy of it so you can keep the original version as it is and make a messed with copied version to mix in with it. Flip it backwards. Now back in the day, this meant flipping the tape over, but now you can just do it digitally. EQ out the lower end of the sound if you're looking for a whooshing back verb. Put a giant reverb, that's almost like an echo effect, on your backwards sound. The reverb is normal and forward, so it is triggered by the flip snare sound, and happens right after it, in response to it, with no timey-wimey stuff. Then, you can flip your snare sound back around the way it was to begin with. Now though, the echo effect is going to be what's backwards, and it's going to make echo that happens before the sound even hits. Time travel. Then, you mix some of the treated track in with the original one. Next, I added cymbal crashes. 
For some reason, I was too lazy to beef up the thin kick drum sound. Instead, I decided to go through all of my sister's Tori Amos-inspired, ad-libbed, impromptu, wordless vocalizations from back in the day and mix it all into the right ear. Then I layered vocals of my own in with my sisters to fatten that sound out. I put all of my own work in the left ear. So, this whole experiment had started in the 90s with an attempt to sound like a meatloaf song. But people had said that three-note descending pattern sounded like the kind of backing harmonies used for most versions of Knocking on Heaven's Door, which it kind of did. And so the backing harmony vocals have now turned into... Completely unprompted, when I sent him a sample of that, Evan said, You know, that kind of reminds me of Guns N' Roses covering Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door. Listen to episode 6 when it comes out to find out why it's funny you say that, I told him. Or maybe it's not funny. Then I decided to add more and more harmonies and do a Pink Floyd-style tape loop kind of delay repeat on a few places. Nowadays, that's done by copying audio bits as if they were phrases in Microsoft Word and pasting them here and there so they repeat. You can put them way over in the one ear or way over in the other ear to make them move around more. If you'd write me back, I'd feel much better. Now, the strong Dire Straits influence, awash in Pink Floyd and Enya-style vocal treatments, meant the song had become something more its own thing, perhaps. (laughs) 
baby, if I died, would you shed a tear? Baby, if I talked, would you listen to me? Baby, if I asked, would you share your fears? Girl, would you talk to me? Babe, how much do you want to know? Girl, how much do you really care? I know your heart if you'd only show me. Babe, how much do you want to share? Baby, when I slept, I dreamed about you. You walked and talked as you went along. But suddenly, you were running away. I didn't chase you. I know that
Someone came 